All right, uh, we're in the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews. And just to remind you of a couple of things, the thesis of the book of Hebrews is the preeminency or supremacy of Jesus Christ. First three verses, he is supreme, uh, the supreme revelation. Second, he's the supreme over, preeminent over angels, preeminent over Moses. Um, he introduces, the author introduces the idea that Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant, which he's going to develop after we get through this. But interspersed with each one of the major doctrinal passages, and I just summarized a couple of them, is a warning passage. And this little chart that I have given you, this is just a colored form of it, but this little chart shows the downward trend of the warning passages. And this is, is really important to get the whole message of the book of, of the importance of these warning passages. And we're in the middle, or I guess really just getting started, with the third warning passage, which in many ways, it's the longest, and it's the most difficult, the most controversial. Um, and so I've decided to give you a copy of my PowerPoints, because I've taught the book of Hebrews a number of times, but I've got the entire book on PowerPoint, and I decided to give you the slides that relate to uh, chapter 5, verse 11, through <clears throat> verse 20 of chapter 6. So that's the colored slides that you have in front of you. The first warning, again, I'm going to summarize, because I want you to get the flow of this. The first warning is, don't drift from the Word, neglect it. Second is, don't doubt the Word of God because of a hardened heart. And in both of these cases, if you can remember back these earlier chapters, the author is using the children of Israel, using the children of Israel before Christ as the example of what happens when you neglect the word of God. You neglect listening and responding and obedience to it. Or you have a hardened heart where you doubt it. And he just shows the calamity that results in the Israeli people's lives, discipline of God and so on. Now this third one is arguably the most controversial. And um, I'm going to try the best I can to stay away from the controversy and just try to get the, get the essence of what he's really saying here. And so what I've done is I've written it all out and given you all a copy of this. So that's what I want to use. I mean, you certainly have your Bibles open and all that like you normally do, but the text is there. Now let me explain to you when I, when I teach using PowerPoint what these different colors mean. A blue means that something's not in the text, but it's just an explanation or uh, an additional idea or thought. Usually I put it in brackets. Red is the text, but it, I'm highlighting a very important part of the text. And, uh, and then there are just other notes you might see here and there. So um, he has just introduced the idea of Jesus as the high priest of the new covenant. And so, in verse 11, we read this. About this, we have much to say. About what? Everything he's been saying about Jesus as the high priest of the new covenant. He met all the qualifications. He has every right to be called the high priest of the new covenant. He even introduced, it's, it's, that we'll be getting to in the next chapter, but he even introduced that Jesus is of a different priesthood order. He's of the order of Melchizedek, which we'll explain, and if you've never heard of him, you, you'll get introduced to him. So he has a lot to say about this. As a matter of fact, that's one of the central elements of the book of Hebrews. But now he gently rebukes them. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. And that's the key phrase. Again, I read from the ESV translation. That's how they've translated it. But I'm pretty sure most of your translations, if there are a variety of translations here, have something like that or indirectly have that. Dull of hearing. Now you think about that for a minute. If someone is dull of hearing, that's a metaphor, it's figure of speech. What does that mean? They're not picking up everything they should. Yeah. Um you're not as alert as you should be. I even put in the in the slide there sluggishness. 
Did you get this? Were you here last week? I had no, I don't. No, I mean, uh, him too. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Trying to make sure everybody has everything so we can uh, I keep getting interrupted. I want to make sure I got. No, it's all right. I'm just trying to make sure we got the train of thought because I don't want to lose anything here. So it's a spiritual dullness. Let's just think for a moment or two, what would cause spiritual dullness if you've got the meaning of the word? Spiritual sluggish. What would cause that in a, today, 2019, in your life, in my life? Apathy. 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 Sin. Sin. Eh? Sin. Yes. Huh? What did he, say? he said sin. Hanging out with the wrong people. Okay. <laughs> Hanging out with the wrong people. Uh, the Engage. kind... Huh? Engaged in routine, just going to church to go through it, rather than all right. Partake. Okay, you're you're just you're kind of going through the performance routine, not really engaged very much in why why you're doing or why it's important. There's a complacency, and so you have this kind of situation with the first century Jewish Christians. And as we've talked before, there's a lot of a lot of difficult things for them in understanding what really is going on in their newfound faith and trying to mesh it with 1,400 years of tradition. And so he says, "I want to tell you a lot more, but you're sluggish, dull, complacent, apathetic. I don't think you can handle it." And then he explains it even further in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, meaning teaching others the truth, which would infer mature, solid, grown up in your faith, he says, you need someone to teach you. (laughs) So what would be the inference we can draw from that? You're not even growing spiritually. I mean, you're still like, a little child spiritually. And so he says, you need someone to teach the basic principles of the oracles of God. Again, he's kind of using Old Testament language here, oracles of God, but the basic principles, what would we kind of call? What would we kind of call? Oh, the ABCs. The two plus two equal four. You see, you want us to really basic fundamental things. And so this is really, it's a gentle, but nonetheless a rather firm rebuke of these people. By this time, you should be spiritually mature enough that you're teaching others. But you're not. You still need somebody to teach you what? The ABCs. The two plus two equal fours. And so it's a gentle rebuke. Now that is really one of the key, other key themes, there are many, but one of the other key themes of Hebrews, grow up, mature, get going with your faith. And you're, you're going to see things like this throughout the rest of the book. But here, it's, he's kind of really nailing them. And then the figure of speech, you need milk, not solid food. Now, our little grandson, Tommy, who's now almost eight months old, I mean, he loved milk until he got the taste of food. Oh, my goodness. This kid, and he, we just got another round of pictures yesterday. He is grown, and he's, he's got all this baby fat and everything. Why? Because he loves to eat. But it's not milk. It's not mom's milk, although he still drinks that. It's all the other stuff. That's just a part of growing up. And so the author is really saying, you people need to grow up spiritually. And I'm about to challenge you to do that. And so this is a sophisticated, detailed, nuanced challenge to spiritual maturity. But it's loaded with all kinds of controversial stuff. So let's continue. Is everybody still with me? Do you understand what he's doing? Verse 13, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. What, do, what does he mean by that, unskilled in the word of righteousness? They've not studied, they've not grown. They've not studied, they've not grown. They haven't practiced. They haven't, practiced, they haven't been challenged. They're not applying it. Pardon me? They're not applying it. 
and yet yeah, good because because of the word unskilled they're not really applying the truth to have the end god has for truth righteousness so if you're still a little baby spiritually you're still not practicing righteousness let me rephrase that you're still not practicing a lifestyle of righteousness like you should if you're growing up spiritually you know it's funny when you when when you first come to christ uh and i'm, I'm going to use my own life as an example in 1972 you see the lord deal with really major things in your life that created such a mess that drove me to christ anyway in the first place and, and then you begin to watch him just enable you to get victory over those things. And you're beginning to understand what a life of righteousness is. Now, I've walked with the Lord since 1972. And I'm still learning what that means. Now the Lord is doing all kinds of things like the motivations of why I do certain things. And the attitudes I have about certain things, including, including certain people. And the way in which I, like this morning, I, mean, I have a Bible study that starts at 6.30. And where we meet, normally I would go down 114th. I, I, I come out uh, going west on Dodge. And I would go left, uh, go south on 114th. But that's been closed for a couple of months. And it's, of course, a test of my sanctification. Because then what I have to do is go out to 120th Street and go left, go to Pacific, come back, and then hit down to uh, 114th where the church is where we meet. Well, this morning, and I mean this, every single light was red. Every single light. I mean, the ones on there, if you ever sat at the, the light on 120th and Dodge, that's got to be the longest light in Omaha. I mean, it just, it just sit there and wait. Okay, Lord. And then even the one at Burke High School. This is 6.15 in the morning. The one at Burke High School went red. Nobody's at Burke High School at 6.15. So I mean, every single so I'm just thinking, okay, Lord. I know this is not, I, mean, this is, I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, but I know this is not a coincidence. I know that you're in control of all things, and I'm so frustrated I have to go this long way, but what I'm going to So by the time I'm pulling in, I'm pretty tense. I pull into, and then I saw that the sign saying road closed, 114th Pacific, were taken down. <laughs> so as I got out of the car at the church, which is a little bit farther south on, on 114, out of the car, and it was the Holy Spirit, I know, just said, thank the Lord that 114th is open. The whole way out, I'm tense, I'm stressed, I was late, you know, all of those things. That's learning to be skilled in righteousness. That's the level of things God's dealing with me. Things that are so frustrating and stressful about life that I should be able to rise above it and trust that my God knows what he's doing. And even in his sovereign providence, allowing every single light between my house and the Presbyterian church where we meet was red at 6.15 in the morning, which, you know, I don't think that has ever happened to anyone in the human race at that time. Jim, that's why you leave at 545. There's still flashing. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. Well, I, now I think I'm going to be able to go do south on 14. So when we, we our, the class has grown so much, we switched from boardroom in Regency to this church where it's almost triple in size now, which is really a good thing. I'm using an example of what the author is saying. You guys, because your little babies are unskilled, in the word of righteousness. You don't even know how to work at applying some of these truths. Since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. What does he mean? The chronologically mature, 40-year-old? No, no, no. He's talking about the spiritually mature. A 17-year-old can be more spiritually mature than a 60-year-old. Because it doesn't matter in chronology. It matters in how you're responding to the word. Now look at what he, and I put an, you know, like an IE. What does he mean? But for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There are two phrases there I want you to see. They're a little bit of an indicator of what spiritual maturity can look like. Powers of discernment. 
Trained. The word trained is an educational word. Trained by constant practice. What does that mean? It takes time to develop powers of discernment. An example to distinguish good from evil. Let's talk about that for a minute. A spiritually mature person, again, I'm not talking necessarily about a chronologically mature person. I'm talking about a spiritually mature person will begin to develop discernment. What does that mean? The ability to distinguish. The ability to distinguish. Distinguish something. Separate fact from fiction. Okay, fact from fiction. That which is God's will from that which is not. Okay, good. You can separate it. Say it again, please. You can separate it. You can separate it. Good fruit. Okay, okay. What it is in front of you, you can identify what it is. In the Old Testament, in especially in the book of Proverbs, where Solomon uses a multitude of words for wisdom, one of those words we translate into English as discernment. It would be a Hebrew word. That's a really interesting word. It, it, if you really dig into what it means is, discernment is an insight into the consequences of your choices. Just think about that for a minute. Repeat that again, uh, I hope I can remember what, how I said that. Uh, Solomon in the Proverbs, discernment, it's how it's, he uses it in the book of Proverbs is insight into the consequences of your choices. Life is about choices. I mean, you know, every day we make multitudes of choices. Uh, you know, you made a dis, dis, you exercise discernment this morning when you put your clothing on. Some of you obviously didn't spend a lot of time on that. Isn't that? Oh, I, <laughs> it was a horrible thing for me to say. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. That's what I used to say to my students. But... Um, but discernment, discernment is as you, I mean, because remember, he's talking to someone who's growing spiritually, spiritually mature. You've developed that trait of discernment. You're, you're, you're seeing that if I choose to do this, it's going to have these consequences. If I choose to do this, it's going to have these consequences. It's not necessarily evil but you're beginning to develop what is really a wise choice for me. But he goes on, and he does illustrate it, trained by constant practice. Now, this then also involves a moral issue, if you will, an ethical issue, to be able to distinguish between good and evil. Discernment is a power, a quality of life. It's a character trait of life that you develop. It's a characteristic of somebody who's spiritually mature. And it also involves that capacity to distinguish between good and evil. Now, sometimes the, 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 the difference between good and evil is glaringly obvious. I mean, there's just absolutely no doubt what's the good path for me to choose. But sometimes it isn't. Because what for me may be a neutral choice may be, for Joel, a devastatingly consequential choice. And I'm I'm using him only because he's right here. But there may be parts of his life, patterns and habits of his life, as he's been growing in Christ, or even before he came to know Christ, that if he chooses this particular path, which for me is sort of neutral, it doesn't matter, for him has potentially devastating consequences because it could lead him back into the old habits and patterns of his life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So a spiritually mature person has gained insight into that and knows this is the path I need to follow. Because I'm learning what happens if I choose this path where this leads me. It leads me to this, which leads me to this, which leads me to this. Now, I'm kind of speaking in the abstract, but that's what he's saying. But this constant practice, you're constantly, you're constantly evaluating. That's what discernment is, gaining insight into the consequences of the choices that you make. My children got nauseous. When they were growing up, I'd say this to them all the time. 
that life is about choices, and every choice you make has a consequence. Yeah, Dad, I know. But then they get into their teenage years where it's a little more profound. Things like, you know, should I have a credit card? In our house, their kids didn't have credit cards, so they got to college. And, and I'm saying that only because Peggy and I thought it was very unwise for them to have credit cards. They're not very discerning. I mean, just think about it. giving a 16-year-old a credit card. That, that doesn't even, if you know anything about 16, that doesn't make sense. That's not only wise, that's almost criminal. But yet, you know, I, I'm using illustrations that are a little bit silly. But at the same time, the author is saying spiritual maturity is evidenced by the choices you make. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. it, it is, but there's... I got, I got a question with that. It, it, it's almost licensed to be legalistic. So, so how do you balance the coming to the father as a child without inhibitions, without paradigms, but then we have to have... We, we're being charged to have this maturity, discernment, good for evil, and how judgmental is that when we're not supposed to... As you, well, you use the, that's the example I use parent-child I used to say to my kids I will trust you whatever the issue is I will trust you until you give me a reason not to trust you you follow what I'm saying that's what God's saying to us I trust you with this I've given you this it's a steward I've given you it's, I've, I'm the author and giver of all things I've given you this car, house, bank account, job I'm trusting you with this I'm trusting you to be a good steward of this. And if you choose not to be a good steward of this, the way I've made my universe, there are very significant consequences if you don't steward this well. Now, see, that, and, and I mentioned it also to kind of stay away from that legalist when I was using the illustration with Joel. What, for Joel, may be a very significant consequential choice with lots of implications. For me, it's kind of neutral because I, I don't have the history of that like he does. You see, so it's like in clear moral issues, I mean, clear moral ethical issues where it's clear in God's word, you do not have the freedom to do this. Lie, you know, steal, those kinds of things. But at the same time, there are lots of other areas of, of life that are not necessarily so clear cut, but it doesn't mean you avoid the wisdom and discernment of thinking through the consequences if I choose to do this. It may be neutral in my life. It may be devastatingly consequential in Joel's life. To me, that, that's, that's what Solomon's teaching his kids in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. How do you be wise? He keeps telling your kids, his kids, it depends on the choices you make. I, let me rephrase that. It's evidenced by the choices you make. Son, that's what he says in one of the chapters. My counsel to you is, I'm going to paraphrase it, but son, do not go down to the red light district downtown. Why? Because he says, son, at your age, at your age, the temptation of that is going to be overwhelming. The wise thing for you to do is stay away from that. But son, if you choose, this is, this is how he talks to him. But if you choose to go down there, then my, my counsel to you is ask God to enable you to, I mean, these are the kinds of things he talks to his kids about. Very first thing he says, it's not legal, it's just, it's a matter of wisdom, son. Don't go down to the red light district as a 16-year-old. That's not a wise choice for you to do. But if you choose to do it, that's how he talks to his kids. And Glenn, you're really onto something there because this kind of talk and discussion is right on the edge of legalism. Right. Because then it's just saying, therefore, no Christian should ever do this, period. Because it says here, I get to discern that. Well, that's it. That's why he uses the word powers of discernment, the way they translate it with the SV. <clears throat> this is really important stuff. And it it it. This kind of discussion I'm trying to foster keeps us away from a legalistic mindset. 
Because if I did, Joe and I are going, he and I would sit down for a couple of hours and talk about all our convictions and all of the ways in which we learn. It would be, it would be different. I know it would. But what if I say, now listen, Joe, I'm older than you chronologically. I've walked with the Lord longer than simply because I'm older. Now, Joe, therefore, I have the right to universalize my convictions for all Christians. That's legalism. Where I'm saying everything I've decided and all my lists and everything, that's for every, that's the test of sanctification for every Christian. That's legalism. And that's, that happens a lot. <laughs> and that's a hard thing about raising kids today. How do you teach them wisdom? How do you help them develop the, skill, the language he uses, the skills of living? Because, I mean, a five-year-old, can you teach them any skills of living? No! No! They just live. They just, they just act. Well, it shows they hear. They Yeah, I mean, that's it. Okay. It's, that's it. So it's how you, that's Peggy and I talked a long time about how we were going to do with our kids. That's where some of that language came. We will trust you until you give us reason not to trust you. Then all privileges go for a while. And so the kids, I, I'm not sure it always worked, but at least it helped them to sing. Mom and Dad do trust me. So therefore, I want to maintain that trust. If I violate that trust, same way with God. God trusts us with a great deal. But if we violate that trust, and that's what Hebrews 12, we'll get to that later on, then God will disclose. Just like our, as that Father, He's our Heavenly Father. There's a difference between good and evil and right and wrong because right and wrong is more legal terms and very easy to say oh this is good this is wrong but good and evil is more of a intentions holy spirit uh understanding and motivation because like you said you can go to the red line district there is nothing wrong about driving down the street but it is evil intentions that is in my heart i'm going over there to sneak a look or to look at something and that is evil but it's not driving the street is evil is that is that what it meant over here uh wow for the most part i agree with what you're saying right and wrong and the way we talk in english in the english language right and wrong brings up the idea has the connotation of ethical absolutes this is ethically right this is ethically wrong Good and evil can have exactly the same meaning, but it also can have the nuance of what is evil, what is an evil choice for Joel may not be an evil choice for me, depending on my lifestyle, habits and patterns. I've had. They have to be really careful there. The author is saying here, without getting into those nuanced differences, the, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is someone who has the power of discernment and, and has that capacity, which is it's trained. And that's an important word. That does not come instantly. It's a result of time, training, living, making choices, seeing the consequences of choices, and being able to, through that constant practice, Knowing what are wise choices in my life, uh, Jim. So when I read this, I, I, I presume that the, the foundation for having a wise and discerning spirit is Scripture. Absolutely. Yet there are many things in life where you can make choices that are okay, but not the best for your life. That may not have a spiritual dimension to them at all. You know, maybe how you invest, for example, or where you choose to live, for example. So, I mean, I guess I'm, where I'm going to follow this is, so what are the sources of building a discerning spirit? Scripture's foundational. I would presume, you know, exposure to other wise individuals, and, and to some extent, your own personal experience of what you well, I think you, you've highlighted three of the most important. One is the Word of God. I would even prioritize them, but the Word of God. Secondly, counsel. Solomon says in the, in the counsel of many, there's much wisdom. 
you are if you're dealing with things you do not seek the counsel of others i mean just whether it's just you know casual conversation with spiritual or intentional seeking out counsel you're a very foolish person i don't mean you are i mean just in general it's just that's a, that's a mark of maturity too you're seeking the wise counsel of other people and then and thirdly and that's what he's really saying here it's you are learning from the experiences and practices of your life. Some extent from the experience of other people. Well, and yeah, and observing others and, and, and how, how this in their life has led to this, which has led to this, and I don't want to do that. That, again, is one of the things Solomon says to his kids, in the, excuse me, in the book of Proverbs. And, and I mean, even although I think that can be implied in some of the things you're saying, but even in the issue of prayer, and I mean, talking to the Lord about these things, and saying, you know, Lord, I have, I have three choices here. And it is not necessarily one is morally better or ethically better than the other, but I want to choose wisely here. Help me to be wise. My pastor, oh, you were there. My pastor spoke on some of that. This, this week when he's, he's in the book of James. And I mean, they're the kinds of things that are part of growing up spiritually and, 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 and mark of spiritual maturity too, is how do I, this is I think a little beyond this, but I think it's appropriate. How do I develop wisdom in my life? I want to be a wise person. And that has nothing to do with college degrees or status in life. It's a wise person is a person who's thinking the way God wants me to think about this issue. It's thinks so much about Solomon choosing wisdom over everything and how the Lord... What word do you praise him? Absolutely. For the foundation of praise he made because it leads to so, so much success, and I'll use that word generally, in every aspect of life. Right. And then he blew it. What he taught, he didn't live. And I, I've often thought about that passage there in First Kings, um, where Solomon says, "Lord, I do not have the skills and the ability to rule these people. You're asking me what I want. I want wisdom." He has a whole bunch of words he uses there, and God says, "In effect, you have chosen correctly, but I now will bless you with." I look at that as a test from the Lord. You didn't ask for these things, but I'm going to, in my grace, give them to you. But they're tests. Can you use this wisdom to live? Would you stamp across Solomon's tombstone, here lies a wise man? Yeah, not, not really. I'd want to put in some cases, but in this and this and this, you know. He didn't follow Deuteronomy 17. says, When you get a king, O Israel, the king is to immerse himself in my word. He is not to get need you get horses and chariots. He's not to amass gold and silver, and he's not to have many foreign wives. How did Solomon do in those three? Every one of them he violated. It's amazing. So his, his, his words in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, I mean, they are worth hours and hours and hours of study and meditation. I think we studied Ecclesiastes here a couple years ago. But then you ask the question, did Solomon live this? Because the book of Ecclesiastes, in my judgment, I'm not the only one who believes that, was written at the end of his life. And he's reflecting on his life. And he says, I did all this. I tried all this stuff. None of it worked. None of it brought what I wanted. And so he ends the book. The end of the matter is, uh, it's really, you know, fear God, obey his commandments, because you're accountable to him. They're the last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. So at the end of his life, he comes back to square one. Worship God, loving, walk in loving obedience with him because you're accountable to him. You're a steward of his. Solomon says, I really didn't live my life like that. John. Okay. Um, well, Solomon... Probably was a very wise man, and he didn't wasn't counsel, but but I, I think there's an example of someone, maybe not. Let's not say someone. There's an element of training and wisdom gained if you don't pay attention to good counsel and you go ahead and make a poor choice. 
and you suffer the consequences. So that, in a sense, I guess, can bring some wisdom and understanding. Oh, absolutely. That's it's a, part of it can be a dangerous thing. Yeah, I mean, a wise person is going to want to avoid doing that again. And, yeah. But yet, you can learn through the consequences of very foolish choices that you've made, which could be very sinful choices or just unwise choices that we can learn. In the experimenting with drugs or something or alcohol, sometimes there's no going back. I mean, That's right. You're, you're caught. And tragic. And I mean, a lot of the opioid stuff yeah. and things that we're reading about today are an illustration of that. What is the benefit of doing this? And does it, is there a personal spiritual satisfaction within us as we do these things? That, what, what's the result? I, I mean, I have thoughts, but I want, I want to hear your answer on it. Like, Okay, so we do these things in earnest, not phony, not fake, but real, because they have meaning in our personal lives, and we do those things. What's the benefit, and is there any sustaining result where we can continue there to draw closer? Well, I'm, you know, this well the, I mean, the Bible speaks of things like an abundant life, a fulfilled life, you know, there are words that are in the Bible. I mean, those kinds of things, I think, result from being, uh, well, let me, growing in, in, in spiritual maturity. I think that they're, they're the natural consequences of that. And, I, and, you know, I don't think, Fred, it is, it, is, it, is, it is important to not hit this as well. You do want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And a, a life that's pleasing to the Lord is, is the kind of life that is being described here and we're talking about as we're going down a variety of bunny trails. I mean, you seek to please the Lord. You, you don't seek to please self or others necessarily. It's pleasing the Lord. And it's, it's, with that goes another idea. It's kind of flip sides of the same coin always wanting to bring glory to the Lord, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So all of those things become the signs, if you will, um, the markers of what's motivating us to spiritual maturity. It is, it is my heart issues of wanting to please the Lord, wanting to do things to his glory. But that's, that also comes with spiritual maturity. A person who came to Christ five minutes ago, that's not how they're thinking. But as you grow, and the more you study God's Word, and the more you're with other Christians, the more you're, you're developing those markers of maturity, they become pretty important guidelines. I, my pastor, uh, every time the board meets, I do a little devotional. It's one of the things he has me doing. Um, last time, our, our, it, this, this year, this uh, church year, I'm doing it on the attributes of God. And last uh, time we met, two weeks ago, the attribute was the omniscience of God. And I asked the guys on the board a question. The omniscience, you know what omniscience means? God knows all, you know, all that. I said, in what way is that comforting? Well, the omniscience of God. He, he, he knows everything. Um, and, you know, he's always... He's always, if he knows everything, you know, David, David says, you know, Lord, you know me. You knew me even when I was in my mother's womb, being formed as an, as an unformed substance. Verse 16 of Psalm 139. I mean, that kind of omniscience, is, it blows your mind, my goodness. But in what way is that also convicting? If God's omniscient, I can't hide anything from God. Right? I can't hide anything from him. And so you have this, this, this remarkable attribute of God that has both a degree of comfort to it, but also a degree of conviction. That's spiritual maturity. I'm beginning to understand who my God is in greater depth and greater detail, which becomes a motivation for me to be wise and discerning and righteous.
because I can't hide anything from him. I can't run away from him. That's another attribute. He's omnipresent. So, you know, the more you get to know God and the more you understand who he is, this is what the author's saying. I can't even teach you things like this because you're still little babies. If I start talking to you about the omniscience and omnipresence of God, you have no idea. I'm making this up, but that's kind of what he's saying. And I want to teach you this stuff. So, now, you know, we have only done three verses this morning, and it's 1230. Mm-hmm. Now, it's all your fault. It isn't mine. No, I'm just kidding. But could you look with me just at the blue at the bottom point? Maturity is someone well-trained and experienced in the walk of faith. Well-trained and experienced in the walk of faith. Discernment. Wisdom. Righteous. That comes with time. That comes with maturity. Now he switches from this mild rebuke in verse, moving to chapter 6, verse 1, to zeroing in on things they should know. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Elementary doctrine of Christ, the things, for example, that were mentioned or alluded to in verse 12. What things? Not laying again the foundation of, now, I put these in brackets, these little categories. Salvation issues, repentance from dead works and the faith toward God. Ritual issues, instructions about washings, literally the word there is baptism. The laying on of hands, healing, commissioning to service, and future issues, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So the author is saying there are, there are three categories of issues, three doctrinal issues that you should be familiar with. Now again, it, this is a little hard for us because these are little wordy things. Some of them have Old Testament phrases. But repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. That's salvation issues. You're turning your back on your old. You're embracing the new. You put your faith in the Lord. That's salvation. And ritual issues. Washington, the baptism. Which follows your faith commitment to the Lord. Things like laying on of hands. Which was, that isn't as common today but it would be you're praying for someone, even in matters of healing. James chapter 5 talks about that. Or ordaining someone or commissioning someone into service. Paul did that with Timothy and Titus, and he tells us about it. Okay, there are normal things that go on in the church. And future issues. What, what's future issues? Resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. They're the things that are the future. So he's just laid out in three categories basic foundational issues of Christian faith. Salvation issues, ritual issues that involve worship, and future issues. What are we holding on to? That uh, the resurrection is a major promise God's made to us. And the eternal judgment, which is discussed in the book of Revelation and all that stuff. So he's saying these are the foundational issues. This is what you know. This is what you've been taught. These are the, the basics of the Christian faith. But I want you to move on from them. Okay, are you with me? Now the next slide. Now we move into the warning. Here's where the controversy develops. And because it's 25, I will never get this finished. But don't lose this. Because I'm almost out of it. So if you lose it, you're in very serious trouble with God. (laughs) And when you come back, if you want another one, bring your checkbook because you owe $1,000 to the capital campaign of the Steadfast Bible Fellowship Church. I'm just kidding. but I'm, That used to work when I was president of Grace. We raised thousands and thousands of dollars. That's not true either. Now the warning. Now the warning. Four, you must go on to, I, I put that in brackets there. You must go on to maturity. 
Here's why. <clears throat> I'm going to read through verse 8. And I want to come back and take it apart. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away to restore them again. Now, what I did, and you can see it in, because I, I, I made copies of the colors, you can see it. I drew an arrow from it is impossible down to restore them to again. Because that's, that's how you would correctly and grammatically make the connection. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt, you could translate that shame. I'm going to stop there for just a minute. <clears throat> the most difficult phrase in these first verses, 4 through 6, of this paragraph, is the phrase, fallen away. Because when you read that, fallen away, how would you interpret that? Or let me rephrase that. How could you interpret that? Fallen away from salvation. You've lost your salvation. Now, that's what makes this controversial. That's what makes it difficult. Honestly, it's not that difficult. But I'm probably not going to convince you of this until next week because we're almost out of time. What the author is trying to lay out here is if you have become dull to the word of God and you're not growing spiritually and you have learned the basic doctrinal truths of Christianity which he just reviewed in verses 1 through 3. What do you do? And you, you, you've, fallen, you've fallen alongside. In other words, instead of growing, you've kind of fallen off the path for a bit. By the way, as I put that in, if you look at the phrase fallen away, I gave you the Greek word. But it's really important, the author does not use the word apostia, which we get our word apostasy from that. That's not the word he's using. The normal word in the New Testament for someone who is given off their salvation is apostasy. That's not the word he uses here. That's, that's the, I'm denouncing my faith. I'm sorry? That's, I'm denouncing. That's, that's different. You're, you're intentionally renouncing. Correct. That's correct. That's not the word he uses here. So let's, let's take a look at this in the little chart that I have down here. Again, these are copies of the PowerPoint slides I use. The author is summarizing the five spiritual privileges that go with salvation. Are, are you hanging with me? Mm -hmm. If I don't do this and take the time of this, you're, you're going to miss the whole point of the passage. So just uh, let's take our time and work through this, and we'll continue it next week. What are the five spirit, uh, spiritual privileges? And I highlighted the key word from verse, in verse 4, once having been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers to come, so enlightened. That refers to the moment when the light of the gospel was apprehended by us for salvation. And I give you a bunch of other New Testament references. Number two, tasted the heavenly gift. Now, when you and I use the word tasted, we think of tasting a, this is almost inconceivable, but maybe it happens, tasting a Reese's peanut butter cup and then refusing the rest of it. That's an impossible thing for me to conceive. But, you know, tasting and then refusing to partake of it. No, 
It means to partake of the gift offered to us by Christ who tasted death for us. So it's tasted the heavenly gift. We have partaken of the heavenly gift given to us by the Father through the Son who tasted death for us. Thirdly, shared in the Holy Spirit, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. The idea of that word shared, it's from koinonia actually, is the idea of fellowship and being filled by the Spirit. That's one of the 33 things that happen to us when we put our faith in Christ. And it's the sign of the new covenant. Number four, tasted the goodness of the word of God. Have heard the New Testament truth explained and concluded it is God speaking to us. And then continuing from that verb tasted, of the powers of the age to come through the spirit, partake uh, through the new birth of the power that will one day remake the world. The power of the resurrection. The power to recreate the new heaven and new earth. The author is saying these five spiritual privileges, you've experienced all this. This is what happens the moment you put your faith in Christ. And you have experienced these. But then you've fallen away. Again, the Greek word is parapipto, which means to fall alongside. It's used in Galatians 6.1. When you have a brother who has fallen alongside, you who are spiritual, bring him back. Restore him. It's not about salvation. What's it about? It's about fellowship. So fallen, fallen, fallen away, fallen away for what? From your intimacy and fellowship with the Lord. You've not only drifted from the word, you've not only doubted the word, you become dull to the word. I'm, I'm, I'm using this. So now, all you're, 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 you're so spiritually immature, you're such a spiritual child that now you not only have drifted and doubt, you become dull to the word where you're complacent, you're apathetic, you're not enjoying any, any of the benefits that go with these, three, these five privileges. It's like you have this fantastic gift that is available to you with tremendous spiritual power and you're drawing on none of it. You're just wallowing in your complacency and your personal choices of sin. It doesn't say why you have fallen away. But, well, it, part of it goes back, uh, Mark, to verse 11, dull of hearing. I mean, he's, you know, in this particular paragraph, he's trying to talk... He's trying to challenge them, excuse me, to spiritual maturity. He's challenging them to move on to maturity in Christ. And they have already experienced all these blessings. Why aren't they, why aren't they growing? Why aren't they taking advantage of these? Because they have drifted, they've doubted, and they're dull to the word of God. Become hard-hearted, they've neglected, and sluggish toward everything that's important to God. Well, Jim, it would be both. It would be both. I mean, that that kind of, to be to be a believer, which summarizing those five spiritual blessings that you've experienced, and to do nothing with them, to not grow at all, to not be moving on to maturity, that is not only unwise; that is sinful. I mean, that's that's why the author's working his way toward chapter twelve where he's going to talk about the disciplinary hand of God in our lives. Now listen to me. If a person that you love and care about, I'm talking about a real person in your life that you know, you know they're a believer, but they're spiritually dull, they're complacent, and they're making all kinds of one-wise choices, according to Galatians 6.1, what's our role? What are we to challenge them to do? Our goal is to restore them. Our goal is to get them back on the path, get them back on their their walk with the Lord. God's 
Work in the life of the believer as the Heavenly Father is always restorative, not punitive. Do you understand what I mean? And that, that we're going to read that as we get to chapter 12. God's goal in disciplinary work, disciplinary training, I mean, to discipline. The Heavenly Father disciplines His children. Before you came to faith in Christ, your relationship with God was judge of the universe, condemned sinner. You put your faith in Christ, you're in the family of God. Now what's the relationship? Heavenly Father to child. That's a big difference. Don't you agree with that? That's a big difference. And so that means the Heavenly Father who loves me now disciplines me because I'm his child. J.I. Packer in his magnificent book, Knowing God, which I think every Christian should read that once a year. But in his chapter on Father, God as Father, the very first sentence, the highest privilege of the believer is to be able to call God Father. That's a profound sentence. But that sums up a lot of what God, God deals with us differently now that we become a, a child of his than he does the unbeliever. Knowing God. So he's making all these, the author's making all these statements, all these things he's saying to the living Christian. What, what is the comparative in, in, the, in a Jew who is not converted to Christ? What, what is the comparison between the, the status of a Christian has and the status of a, a non Christian Jew? It, 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 well, it would be it would be that once you go through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ascension, there is no difference anymore. I understand that. Is equating to something from the Old Testament? You mean yeah. non-practicing Jew or a Jew? I'm looking at, looking at, like at, at Isaiah six. Nine and ten, where, where God's commission to Isaiah was right. make them right. go and see the other guy, the but he's going to do the same thing he did with the other two warning passages. Learn from Israel. Because when they became, using the first one, drift from the word of God, neglected him, what happened? He disciplined them. He sent a plague into the camp or whatever to turn them around. When they became, began to doubt in the word that was used, they began to harden their heart. What does he do? He disciplined them to get them back. So here, he's, and, and that is really a good point, Fred, because the language he's using in some of these spiritual privileges is language out of the Old Testament. Now, we are, I'm way over, I've kept you long, I'm sorry. This, I told you this is going to be hard. That's why I gave you all this stuff. So, do not lose any of this, and we'll pick up right away with verse 6 next week. And think of all your questions, write them all down, and have them ready, and I'll answer them the best I can next week. Probably you'll forget all this, and I'll have to start all over, but don't. I mean, this is really important stuff. And uh, if you can come away in you know, the end of next hour, if you're really going to understand this, you're, you're among very few evangelical Christians who really understand Hebrew sex. But you're going to understand it. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Let me pray and I'll let you go. Your Lord, thank you for an hour filled with lots of discussion, lots of thinking and processing of what is truly a profound passage of Scripture. And I thank you for the good questions and good interaction. We ask your continued um, blessing as we study this together and Lord willing, complete it next week. I pray for these men. I am just absolutely awestruck that they take an hour out of their busy week to come to a class like this. It indicates to me they have a hunger for the Word of God. They don't want to be fed by milk. They want to be fed by the meat of God's Word. They want to be stretched spiritually and in the context of what we're studying to go on to maturity, to grow and mature in Christ. 
to go beyond just the elemental things of our faith to the deep things of our faith. And that's part of what we're studying now together. So thank you for that. Thank you for these guys. We pray for the unspoken request that Fred has mentioned. We're very grateful um, for him and ask you to minister to him in this time. Thank you that Woody's brother is doing uh, uh, real well. Thank you he was able to be with him last week. So Lord, we're going our separate ways now. Dismiss us with your blessing. And Lord, as we try to pray each time we're together, we want to represent you well. Help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week. Just think about that for a minute. Uh, I hope I can remember what how I said that. Uh, Solomon in the Proverb discernment, it's how he uses it in the book of Proverbs, is insight into the consequences of your choices. Life is about choices. I mean, you know, every day we make multitudes of choices. Uh, you know, you made a this, this you exercise discernment this morning when you put your clothing on. Some of you obviously didn't spend a lot of time on that. Not, oh, I, it was a horrible thing for me to say. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. That's what I used to say to my students. But... Um,